here today, you are very faithful. This is one of two weeks of the year uh, that is typically one of the two worst attended weeks, the weeks around spring break. So I always, I always wonder, right, whenever we get to this day, either uh, you were like me, you just didn't get the chance to take spring break this year, or you just love being in, at home so much, it's every day, it's like a vacation, right? That's nah, probably not it either. Whatever the case was, I am so glad you're here today. It speaks to your faithfulness that you're present, and I'm really glad that you're here for a lot of reasons, one of which is I think there's a message today uh, that's an, an encouraging message for, for you, and it's a, an encouraging message for our time. And it's a very hope-filled message, and it all centers on a single day, a single day, a day when Jesus came to town, literally, a day in the life of Jesus where he goes to Capernaum, and we're going to look at the difference that he makes in a single day. Now, while we look at that, I'm reminded of a book that, was, that came out a long time ago, uh, several, two, probably two or three decades ago, called Joshua, that played with this idea of Jesus, Jesus kind of coming into a town and what would it be like if that happened. Well, we have an autobiographical account of a day in the life of Jesus. In this case, the author, guided, of course, by the Holy Spirit, but telling his own story, is Matthew, also known as Levi. And the day we're going to talk about is a day that Matthew witnessed with his own eyes and a day that, as we'll see, changed his life forever. In fact, who knows? Maybe this day that happened so long ago will have some kind of transforming, life-changing effect on us today. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 9. And today is about stories, three stories, really four. Matthew sneaks one in in the last one. So we get kind of a two for one at the end. Three stories, three events, all of these true stories, all of these real encounters with a real Jesus. Matthew chapter nine starts with these words. Jesus stepped into a boat and he crossed over and he came to his own town. That is a town of Capernaum. Now, you might ask, where had he been? Well, he had been uh, healing the madman of Gadara. He'd been doing a lot of things on the other side of the lake, and now he's back in town. We get a picture that as soon as his boat lands, and it seems like most of the stories we have of Jesus with these boats, they all happen early in the morning. So we'll assume this was pretty early in the day. And it says that as soon as he lands there, some men brought to him a paralytic. Now, I've told this story before, and and the truth is we don't know this man's story. We don't know how he came to be paralyzed. In the previous sermon, I speculated with you, maybe he went out with his buddies one night, got liquored up, and, and got injured in a camel race. We really don't know what happened, right? Uh, but he is paralyzed. And the, the story, it implies, but it doesn't directly state that maybe sin of some fashion had something to do with his paralysis. But well, we don't know for sure how it happened. What we do know is he is completely paralyzed. He can't do anything for himself. He's numb. Literally numb. I suspect there are some who feel that kind of numbness emotionally, if not physically, from time to time. 
feeling powerless, paralyzed, unable to make a difference. If that's your circumstance, then you know what this man felt like. Now, he was fortunate because he had these friends who brought him to Jesus. And I want to make this first point today that that you and I are called to be stretcher bearers. That we are called to bring the numb, the hurting, the paralyzed to Jesus, to, to help those who can't help themselves. This is a task that we are called to. These friends will change this man's life forever because they are smart enough to bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus. They brought to him a paralytic who was lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Isn't this fascinating? Their faith ultimately would lead to the forgiveness of sins for their friend. That seems really awkward and odd, doesn't it? Your faith could have an effect on the forgiveness of someone else. It won't just have an effect on forgiveness, but also we'll see on healing. But your faith could impact someone else's station or position with God. That's a great encouragement to me. I hope it is to you as well. That your faith, when Jesus sees your faith, it causes him or releases in him something for those who you are bringing to him your children, your family, your neighbors, your friends. He saw their faith. Not the man's faith, but he saw their faith. But he turned to the young man and he says, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Now this was a remarkable statement, and I think it probably speaks to the fact of what I said earlier, that sin of some fashion had led to his injury. And before there could be physical healing, there needed to be a kind of spiritual healing that took place. He needed to be right with God. And he probably bore shame and guilt and regret. Uh, He wouldn't be the first or the last to do those things, right? But Jesus speaks to him. (laughs) Take heart. Your sins are forgiven. Now there were Other people that were at this place on this day, Jesus has pulled up the boat. Uh, Think of it kind of like, not a major seaport, but but think of it as a dock where some of the boats pull up, a beach where others just kind of come up onto the beach. Both of those would likely have happened in Capernaum. There was a lot of trade that was happening by ship there. And it was pretty much bustling. Like this was a place where in a, a time in society where if you wanted to buy fish, you just went down to the beach and you bought fish that were right off of the boat. And uh, there were other goods that were brought over and, and trade that was happening. So it's also kind of a marketplace. And because of that proximity and the sale, selling of goods and all that's happening there, uh, there were plenty of people there. Uh, seeing what happened, and also probably up above, just a little bit above, with a good view of everything that was going on, was the tax collector's booth. And uh, it was his job to uh, assess taxes to, uh, on the sales tax, if you will, things that were happening. He's taxing people that are making transactions there uh, on the beach. 
some of the people who are there are religious leaders, and they're very curious about Jesus, so whenever he's in town, they're around. Uh, they want to hear what he's saying, what he's doing. Some, out of jealousy, no doubt, uh, Jesus had large crowds that followed him, some um, genuinely listening to what he said, like Nicodemus, a Pharisee who listens very carefully to Jesus. Well, at this, some of the teachers of the law, that is those who were there, said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Why is he blaspheming? Because he said that he had forgiven someone's sins. And if, in fact, Jesus didn't have the authority to do such a thing, he would have been blaspheming. So he's forcing them to think about something. Is Jesus really who he says he is? Is he really sent by God, anointed by God? And for us, right, is he really God with skin on, walking among us? Well, they're, they're frustrated. We'll see them again in the story. Knowing their hearts, and th that phrase can be alarming to us, knowing their thoughts. Did you recognize that Jesus knows your thoughts, the good and the bad? He doesn't just see what we do, he knows what we think. He knew their thoughts. That's why we kind of don't always have to pray out loud. He knows what we're thinking. He hears it, understands it. He knows our thoughts. That can be exciting. That also could be terrifying. <laughs> our thoughts aren't always as pure as we wish they were. Knowing their thoughts. He knows what they're saying. And Jesus says to them, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat, and go home. And then the man got up and, when he, and went home, and, and when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe. And they praised God, who had given such authority to men. Jesus is the forgiver of sins. He is the healer of the physically broken. These are the things that Jesus does when he's in town. He forgives sins. He heals the broken. What's our task when Jesus comes to town? Our task is to bring the broken to Jesus. In this first story that Matthew was watching, Levi was watching from his tax collector booth, he saw all these things that happened. He saw it right there on the beach. <laughs> he saw it. Levi's sitting up there and he's like, man, this Jesus is something. He'd probably seen him before. I, I speculate but can't prove he may have even seen the great catch of fish. He's been watching Jesus from afar. I promise you that when Jesus comes to him in this story, it won't be the first time that Jesus has passed by his tax collector's booth. And I also can tell you this. I suspect Matthew is really unpopular with some of the other disciples because he's probably made Peter pay a tax, probably more than once. And so I suspect Peter, of all the people, is not real thrilled with old Levi up there in the tax collector's booth. 
And what's more, before we get into the next part here, let's talk about this Levi character for a moment because there were two kinds of people that were involved in taxation uh, in, in uh, Judah at that time, right? One of them was a person who was incredibly wealthy and bought a contract from the Romans to enforce the tax code. And they bought it, it was like a contract, it was like a collection agency. And you bid to get a, a contract to go out and enforce, and you get a little bit of the money off of the, the amount you collect. And the, the idea was you could actually buy these contracts for the taxes. And Rome didn't care how much you charged them in taxes as long as they got the amount of money they were due. And then you got your money back and however much extra you wanted to get by how you taxed the people. Now, there were two kinds of people that did this. The first, they were very wealthy members of the community, oftentimes prominent members of the community, who bought the contract and then hired other people to do the dirty work. And, and they had other people go out and do all of the things in the business. Uh, and, and the people in the community hated the enforcers, if you will, or the collectors, but they didn't even necessarily know that these wealthy people were the ones benefiting from all they were doing. And that was one kind, very devious and sneaky, but that's not Levi. The other kind is just really brash. You buy the contract, and then you just pull up and you say, hey, I just bought this contract you owe me. And, and that's, that's Levi, that's Matthew. Like, this is his business, he's in charge. And he says, hey, I mean, could you imagine if someone just pulled up their car in front of your house and said, hey, I'm here to collect taxes on you every day? Wouldn't you be annoyed by that? I mean, admit it, you're probably annoyed once a year, let alone if it was all the time. And that's what was happening. That's this guy. That's Levi, a businessman, a tax collector, and apparently very good at what he does. Now, there are some trade-offs that come with this, because when you become a tax collector like Matthew, where you're not hiding it, you're pretty bold that you are who you are, uh, you're not very popular. And he owns that. He embraces it. In fact, he doesn't really even care what you think of him. His friends that he hangs out with, they're not the prominent people of society. The people he hangs out with are the outcasts. People he hangs out with, his friends, well, we'll read in his next part of the story, the good people, quote unquote, in the community all think that his friends are sinners. He thinks they're sinners. Jesus thinks they're sinners. In fact, the truth of the matter is when Jesus will lay the claim that they're sinners, that I think his friends aren't offended at all. They're like, yeah, that's us. <laughs> that's pretty much us. That's who we are. We're the sinners. I tell you all that because on this day, as soon as Jesus has healed that guy and sent him on his way, while all of these religious leaders are standing there eyeing Jesus, contemplating could he forgive sins, he immediately goes to the most unpopular person on the beach. The, the most immoral, probably, person on the beach. And he says the most incredible thing. And that is the second story about the day Jesus came to town. 
As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew, or Levi, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. (laughs) Follow me. Before I read the next part of the story, you need to understand something about those religious leaders who are all following Jesus. Deep down, they admire him. They even hope he might really be the Messiah. They are afraid he might be the Messiah. What they really want is for him to choose them, to say, you're good enough. That's what they really want. You realize that if Jesus had gone to the Pharisees and Sadducees and they said, man, you guys get it. You're the ones I want following me. You'd be my disciples. They would have done it in spades. They'd been so happy. They'd have celebrated. They would have made him like a king. They wanted that. They wanted for him to say, you're good. You're the best. You're the most pure, the most holy, well done, good, faithful servants. That's what they wanted. But Jesus was always challenging them your whitewashed tombs. You really look good on the outside, but on the inside, you're dead. And they hated, they hated it when he was honest and brutal like that. They wanted him to choose them. And now he walks up to the most hated man on the beach. He says, hey, I want you on my team. I mean, this would be like playing a pickup game of football and Peyton Manning's on the field, right? And you're the guy who's picking, and you have a chance to pick this great superstar, but you don't pick him. <laughs> and he's like, what's wrong with you? you don't, you're not going to pick me? I'm great. Yeah, yeah, you're not the guy I'm looking for on my team today. I mean, that's kind of how they felt. You're going to pick, wait a minute, you're going to pick that guy instead of me? There's a reason they start to hate Jesus, that their hearts turn against him. But there should also be a reason for us to say, wow, if Jesus picks a guy like that, maybe I've got a chance. Maybe we've got a chance. Jesus looks up at Matthew, at Levi, and he says, follow me. And incredibly, Matthew got up and followed him. Now, I don't know what's going on in Matthew's life. There's some things that we just don't ever get to know. The Bible tells us about a lot of disciples that they had wives. We know they had families, a lot of them. We don't ever get that story for Levi or Matthew. So we don't know. Maybe he was married. Maybe his wife left him. We don't know the story. We could speculate. Uh, Maybe he had parents that had disowned him. We don't know the story of his family or brothers or sisters. The most educated guess we could make is that because he had chosen to be a tax collector, he had chosen money that he had been ostracized by his family. Uh, He wasn't welcome at synagogue. He wasn't welcome at family gatherings. He was shunned by his peers in society. And when Jesus gives him a chance, he jumps immediately. Did you catch those words about Matthew? Jesus says, follow me, and Matthew got up, and he followed him. He just left it there. 
left the business. You know, one thing that happened that day when he walked away from the beach, do you know all the merchants celebrated? Woohoo! No taxes today! When they were excited about that part, that was the best part of the day for them. The tax man's gone. And while Jesus was, was with them, the very next phrase, is, it's like that story of Zacchaeus. When Zacchaeus, another tax collector, comes to faith, Jesus says, I'm going to your house today. So, so pick out the story here. Jesus comes up to Levi or to Matthew. He says, you follow me. And so Matthew starts to follow Jesus. And the very first place, apparently, that Jesus takes him is right back home. He takes him right back to his very own house. Listen to what happens in the story. The very next thing that happens, right? He says, follow him. And while they were having dinner at Matthew's house. (laughs) So Jesus says, okay, you follow me. I'm going to go home with you today. And that's where he starts, friends. When he comes into our life, he starts right where we live. Right where we live. Now, I have to wonder about what happened next, right? They're going to have dinner together, and it's very clear that there is an invitation that's made in the story of Zacchaeus and of Levi, an invitation's made to have other people join them for dinner. And this is the part where I can almost imagine when Jesus says, hey, invite your friends over tonight. We're going to go to your house for dinner. And, and this is when Levi's like, uh, <laughs> yeah, about that, Jesus, my friends, uh, well, my friends, uh, they don't go to synagogue very often, and uh, they don't dress up on Sabbath, and, and they're a pretty rough crowd, and you wouldn't want to hang out with them, probably. I mean, this is what we would imagine the conversation's like, and like, Jesus, like, dude, Levi, I'm hanging out with you. <laughs> Invite your friends, okay? And, uh, well... What happens next is telling. When Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came, and they ate with him and with his disciples. And many tax collectors, every port that Peter had done business in, this is like all the people who had taken his money away for taxes. I just have to imagine Peter bristling through this meal. I say that because Peter seems to be the one that whenever they want to, the, the Pharisees want to pick on Jesus, oftentimes they go through Peter to get to Jesus. And here, Peter's like, man, this isn't right. What are we doing? These guys are bad guys. Well, I digress. The Pharisees are there too, watching, spying. They're incredulous right now. And they say to the disciples, maybe to Peter, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, and we don't know if Jesus was told or he overheard it, but on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus doesn't argue at all the fact he's hanging out with sinners. (laughs) To those Pharisees, you're right. I'm with the sinners. They need me. They need what I have to offer. Hear this. Jesus is a friend of sinners. And don't miss what the Apostle Paul would remind us. 
That's good news because every one of us is a sinner. And Jesus is our friend. And Jesus is not just a friend of sinners. He's a doctor for the morally corrupt and the morally broken. We have a responsibility not only to bring the broken, but to befriend the lost. There's a story that was told about a woman from Arkansas. She was a single mother. And we don't have all of her story. Max Licator reports this in his book, uh, Christ Next Door. And when he writes in the book about this story, he tells the story of this young mother who had a baby um, that had some kind of a, a problem that the baby just cried constantly, like a colicky cry. And, and it was hard to calm the baby down and to give the baby comfort. And, and this young single mom who was trying to work and take care of her baby, she was at the end of her rope. And um, her next door neighbor couldn't help but hear the baby crying and crying and crying. And she couldn't help but see the distress and the wear and tear on this young mother. And so she walked over to her, this, the neighbor walked over to this, this young woman's house, and she said, listen, she said, can I just hold your baby while you do some things so that you, you, you don't have to hold the baby for a few minutes? And I don't mind holding a crying baby, and, and, and you, know, you can do things you need to do. Of course, the single mom was like, yes, <laughs> yes, please come in. And she just held the baby. That's what she did. She just held the baby, patted the baby, tried to calm the baby. The baby still cried a lot. She was there. And she didn't just do it every now and then. She kind of made it her ministry. In the morning, when this young woman had to get ready for work, she'd go over, and what would she do? I'll hold the baby while you get ready for work. She'd come home in the evening, and the single mom would have to do some things to make a meal or to prepare things. And what did this neighbor really do? She'd come over and she'd go, let me just hold the baby so you can do some things. And she would. Well, of course, you know where this story goes. This young single mother, very much a part and product of the world, slowly starts to come to faith because the woman who holds the baby every day is a Christian. And when she comes to faith, her friends in the world say, you don't want to be a Christian. <laughs> Those Christians are uptight. They have all these rules. They do all these things. And you just don't want to be like that. Why would you want anything to do with those Christians? And the young mother said this. All I know is a Christian came to my house and she holds my baby. And I want to be like that. We have an opportunity to befriend the lost and to make a huge difference. Jesus befriended the lost. Jesus befriended the broken. You see, that story could have played out a lot differently, couldn't it? Someone could have looked down the nose at an, as a neighbor. Well, she got what she deserved. Could have made all kinds of moral dispersions. That's not what happened in that story. I pray that's not what happens with your neighbor. 
Jesus is making a difference when he comes to town. First on the beach, and now in the dining room. Well, a lot happens on this day, and as we read a little farther, we see Jesus then gets questioned about some things by some disciples of John. I don't have time to go into all of that. And in the middle of being questioned, talk about a busy day, we read in the next verse the last of our stories about the day Jesus came to town. Uh, We pick up the story in verse 18. It says, while Jesus was saying this, as he's talking to John's disciples there, a synagogue leader, a ruler, came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her, and she will live. (laughs) This may have been the same synagogue leader that never let Matthew go to a synagogue. But he's been watching Jesus, too. There's something about Jesus. Let me get this. When people see Jesus... They take notice. When people see Jesus in you, they'll take notice. This synagogue leader has been watching Jesus, and on this day, the day Jesus came to town, it just happened to coincide with the worst day of his life. His daughter dies. Oh, we could be somewhat cynical and say, well, why didn't you come to her when she was sick? Why'd you wait till she was dead? And we don't know an answer for that. Maybe he's hoping she'd get better. What's important is in his moment of absolute desperation, when it seems like all hope is lost, he has enough faith to believe Jesus can do the impossible. The impossible. My daughter's dead but you can heal her, you can restore. Come, put your hand on her. If you touch her, Jesus, she'll live. And Jesus got up, and he went with them, and so did his disciples. What kind of impact do you think this had on the tax collectors and sinners that were there at the dinner? (laughs) Whoa. He came to us, the outcast. Now he's going to the leader of the synagogue. Is he going to raise this girl from the dead? I want you to gather two things about this man. First, he had great faith. And second, he was completely and utterly helpless. But he was not hopeless. And he placed his hope on Jesus. As they were walking to his house, Matthew tells us there's one more story, one more character that's got to enter in on this day. A woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind Jesus and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I'll be healed. And when she touched it, Jesus recognized that power had gone out from him, and he turned, and he saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. 
I want you to understand that she is physically exhausted. In her time, in her day, with no medicines, no vitamins, no supplements, she's probably as white as a sheet, thin, pale, uh, exhausted, worn out, looks probably, not, not to be macabre, but probably looks like an Auschwitz survivor, looked at the end of the time in the internment camp. Uh, everything that she had, she spent trying to get a, a cure, and she's, she's really probably been taken advantage of by quacks who told her to do all kinds of crazy things, and she could be healed, and none of them worked. And this has gone on for 12 years. Uh, not stated, but likely she had a problem that would have made her ceremonially unclean, and so likely she also had been not able to worship in the community. She was a person who was desperate. <laughs> who else could she turn to? She heard Jesus was in town, and she wanted to touch him. She wanted him to make a difference in her life. And so when she sees he's on the move again in the crowd, she doesn't miss her chance, and she musters whatever energy she has left, and she reaches out in a moment of desperation and just grabs hold of his robe as he walks by. And to her surprise, to her hope, her amazement. Jesus is one who doesn't just heal the physically broken or the morally corrupt. He is the one who restores life. And he restores hers. Amen. Immediately she's made whole. He calls her daughter, which is a term of saying you're a part of a family. You're not unwelcome and unclean. You're a part of my family. You're my daughter. He is the restorer of life. He is the restorer of family. And that is especially evident at the end of the story. As soon as this has happened, it says in the next verse, verse 23, Jesus then entered the synagogue leader's house. When he got there, he saw the flute players in the noisy crowd think wailers and mourners who are grieving the death of this child. He said to them, go away. The girl's not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. Of all the responses you could have to Jesus, this is the least productive. <laughs> they laughed at him. I hope we don't do that. I hope there's nothing that we think is impossible for Jesus because there's not. After the crowd had been put outside, and I, I just have to picture Jesus having the disciples just kind of get these people out of here. <laughs> I don't want these people that are all about death in this place. This is about to be a space for life. Kick them out. And the crowd then is put outside. And Jesus went in, and he took the girl by the hand, and she got up. <laughs> I have to imagine when she got up, that, that synagogue leader, that ruler of these uh, Jewish, faithful Jewish men and women, 
I have to imagine two things are occurring. He hugs his little girl, nearly squeezes the life right out of her. He's so happy that she's back. The worst day of his life has turned to one of the best days of his life. And then he hugs Jesus. Then he hugs her. Then he hugs Jesus. And all the while, those other religious leaders are watching what's happening, shaking their heads. And, and, and we don't get to know, you know, we don't always know to say 120 people follow Jesus at, at one point or, 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 or a crowd of this or that we see in the Bible different times. I have to imagine this guy, he's like a Jesus follower for life. You know, someone saves your little girl, brings him back from the dead, you're probably a fan for life. And, and, and that's a problem for a lot of these other religious leaders because they're in Capernaum, the synagogue leader now, he is a, uh, he is a convert to Jesus. The church, if you would, is going to be changed in Capernaum forever because preachers do one thing all the time. They talk about their kids in sermon illustrations, and he's going to talk about it. He's going to say, let me tell you the story of the day that my little girl died, and you all were weeping and crying and, you know, making a big deal about it, and, and Jesus came. Remember that day? And you got to remember, like, some people are like, yes, that was great. Jesus is the best. And others are like, oh, not that story again. Heard that 10 times. Jesus is the force of restoration in the world. He is the restorer of life. He is the restorer of families. And we have the task of joining him in the work of restoration. You see, we are the friends that bring the broken to Jesus on a stretcher. We are those who befriend the lost, and we are committing ourselves and should be committed to the task of helping and joining Jesus in the work of restoring people to a right relationship with him, restoring the dead to life. Because friends, when we are apart from Christ, whether we know it or not, we are dead in our sins and transgressions. But when we come to Christ, we are made alive. Amen. We are made new. Yes. And you and me, we have the privilege of joining Jesus in that work. So we should be about these tasks. Because here's the reality. Jesus didn't just want to come to Capernaum. He wants to come to Ogilville. He wants to come to Columbus. He wants to come to Honda and Cummins and Arvins and whatever other place we have people work. He wants to come to North High School and East High School. and He wants to come to the elementary schools. He wants to come to Mount Healthy. Uh, he wants to come into your community. He wants to come into your clubs. He wants to come into your family. He wants to come into... He wants to come in. The great painting was based on a word from Revelation. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And the painting shows Jesus saying, I want to come in. And the only question before us is, will we let him in? In our story today, we saw a paralyzed man who let him in and his life was changed. We saw a tax collector who let him in. And we saw a synagogue leader who let him in. And we saw a woman who was so desperate to have healing in her life she just wanted to barely touch him. But when she did, he made her a part of his family and he let her in in a big way.
I don't know which person you most relate to today. If you're here and you feel most like the tax collector, the sinner, to know this, Jesus wants to bring healing to your life today. If you're here today and you have a burden for someone that's lost and that's what you feel, like a stretcher bear, then today's the day for you to lift that person's name before the Lord earnestly in prayer. Maybe there's someone else in the story you resonate with. Just end with this thought. In all of the stories, the solution was Jesus. And in all of our circumstances, the solution, the answer is Jesus. If you've never made him your Lord and Savior, do it today as we stand and we sing our hymn of invitation. Thank you.